You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. So, uh, it is really a great pleasure to be featuring you at City Lights again. Uh, Catherine Flynn is no stranger to City Lights. She's a scholar whose work we've followed for many years with great interest. And, of course, James Joyce and The Matter of Paris is a book that we've been kind of waiting for with great anticipation for a long time. Kudos to our friends at Cambridge University Press for producing this book and also in such a lovely edition. I mean, look at that cover. It's such great eye candy. So, indeed. So, uh, Catherine Flynn is professor in the Department of English at the University of California at Berkeley. She is also an affiliate of the program in critical theory and also currently serves as the director of Berkeley Connect in English and as associate director of Irish studies. In her work, she focuses on British and Irish modernist literature in the European avant-garde context. Um, This book, what can I say about it? Uh, It's compelling. It's an amazing work of scholarship. And as I said already, it's quite gorgeous. We're hoping you actually get to pick one up tonight and handle it. Uh, And also, it really comes at a perfect time now that we're celebrating the 100th anniversary of Surrealism. Um, So joining Catherine tonight is Kent Puckett. He's a professor in the English department at UC Berkeley. Uh, Also, he has an interest in uh, 19th century literature and fiction, also in literary theory, and also writes on film. So at first, we're going to have Catherine read from the book. And then we will have the two of them enter into a discussion and then hopefully bring you into it at the very end. So welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much, Peter. It's uh, such an honor to be here. It really is uh, unbelievable, actually, to be here. And thank you so much to each of you for coming. It means so much to me to see you all here. Um, See all these lovely faces. Uh, it's really, it's really wonderful. Um, so um, I, uh, you know, I, I should thank Ray Ryan for um, publishing this book. You know, for really having the instinct to see that <laughs> this is a good book, <laughs> <laughs> and that you know he should he should publish it. Um, and I think that it opens up an exciting new vein in joy scholarship and also in modernism. Um, you know, really linking one of the most canonical Irish and maybe British modernists with a, a European tradition, a French tradition, um, and really showing Ireland to be not just a kind of, you know, the Emerald Isle under the thumb of Britain, but actually dealing with problems of urban modernity and capitalism in very serious ways. So I'm going to read a little bit to you, um, just to kind of give you a sense of how the book kicks off. And... Uh, Um, Yeah, so thank you for listening. On December 3rd, 1902, a 20-year-old Joyce set off for Paris. Before he left, he approached W.B. Yeats with what he called a book of prose essays or poems. Accounts of their meeting vary, but in a manuscript intended as a preface to Ideas of Good and Evil, Yeats records their subsequent discussion. He says... I asked him to come with me to the smoking room of a restaurant in O'Connell Street and read me a beautiful, though immature and eccentric, harmony of little prose descriptions and meditations. He had thrown over metrical form, he said, 
that he might get a form so fluent that it would respond to the motion of the spirit. I praised his work, but he said, I don't really care whether you like what I'm doing or not. <laughs> it won't make the least difference to me. Indeed, I don't know why I'm reading it to you. <laughs> but the patterns of Charles Baudelaire's formulations live on in Yeats's record of Joyce's words. As Joyce presents his own, Baudelaire's ambition for poetic prose, a form that banishes meter to become supple enough to adapt to the motions of consciousness. Joyce's scornful response to Yeats constitutes an unacknowledged substitution of one father figure for another. By December 1902, Joyce had read Baudelaire widely, but he was also acquainted with other radically experimental figures of late 19th century French literature, having read Émile Zola, Gustave Flaubert, and Joris Carl Wismans. He also read Arthur Simmons' The Symbolist Movement in Literature, a volume that featured poetry by Paul Verlaine, as well as Gérard de Nerval, Arthur Rimbaud, Stéphane Mallarmé, and Maurice Maeterlinck. He discovered Verlaine's Les Poètes Maudits and translated and rewrote poems by Verlaine. The Poet Maudit, or Accursed Poet, offers us a lens through which to view young Joyce's persona, disdaining alike Yeats, the Dublin literary establishment, and conventional success. Accordingly, Paris, as a hotbed of literary innovation, offered an attractive alternative forum for Joyce. We're nearly there. <laughs> In moving to Paris, Joyce followed an Irish tradition of migration. Continental Europe offered an arena free of British colonial rule, and Paris in particular was associated with the appealing Republican ideal of a culture of free and equal citizens. It was also an alluringly modern city. Christopher Prendergast writes of the notion of Paris as the capital of the 19th century. Describing Paris, he writes, in this way, had become something of a commonplace from the late sorry, 18th century onwards. Paris, in these accounts, was variously capital of the century, Europe, nations, the earth, and the universe. As portrayed in novels by Victor Hugo, Stendhal, and Flaubert, Paris is a place of glamour and opportunity, of intense struggle, as men rise to glory or fail dramatically. In setting off for Paris, with his ambition of poetic prose, Joyce turned a novelistic trope into an artistic one, reimagining the conquest of the city as the conquest of an urban form. Paris and poetic prose allowed Joyce to fly by the nets of language, nation, and religion, and more specifically, of Yeats and a literary movement engaged in reworking myth and folklore in the service of cultural nationalism. Yet if Joyce flew by those nets, he was caught in new ones, economic conditions that were not unique to Paris, but powerfully embodied there, conditions present in Dublin life in a less developed but insidious form. This book does not discount the important work Joyce scholars have done on issues of nationalism and post-coloniality, nor does it deny the importance of a wider range of references for Joyce, but it aims to show that Joyce's early encounter with Paris exposed him to an intense experience of consumer capitalism that informed his subsequent perceptions of Dublin and motivated the innovations of his writing. Okay. All right, well, th 
thank thank you so much, everyone, and thank you, Catherine, for for um, here. Let's let's switch. You you should have the podium. Oh no, if I, we can. Oh no, I'm gonna. Okay, wait, it's here. Okay, okay. <laughs> so actually, so, so feedback situation. Oh yeah. Yeah. So 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 such a, a, a pleasure to be here, and such a pleasure to to um, think about your, your your book some more, right? And so one of the things that strikes me as especially powerful about your book is the way that you move across different levels of abstraction and analysis thinking about literary history, a kind of biographical history, um, working very, very closely at the level of the text. And so I, I want to give you a chance as we go forward to talk about a bunch of different aspects of the work. But to start with, and as your reading already suggested, you know, one of the things that your book is encouraging us to do is to move past an account of, of Joyce as a modernist novelist from Ireland, right? and to start to think about some other Joyces. And just... Some of them that I, I came across in your book, there's the French Joyce, there's um, uh, the avant-garde Joyce, there's the revolutionary Joyce. And so I'm just I'd be interested, just as a way of starting, to, to think about what Joyce or what Joyce's you would like us yeah. to think about or see coming out of yeah. your book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, thanks for that question. So Joyce, if anyone who um, has been to Dublin you'll see that there's a kind of hagiography of Joyce in Dublin. Um, pictures of him everywhere, statues of him. You know, he's really, he, he's monumentalized in Dublin. And maybe he really <laughs> should be. When you look at his books, Ulysses and Finnegan's Wake, you see these kind of masterful achievements. Um, and it's very easy to just see him as um, some kind of strange Irish genius, uh, you know, representing his country in more and more uh, outlandish inventive ways. And um, what I want us to do through this book, or to see through this book, is to return to Joyce as a writer who is struggling to um, understand, make sense of the world he lives in, and to make an art form that actually has some power in that world. So it's very important that I chose this picture for the front of, uh, for the front cover of him. This was taken when he was twenty in Paris during that first trip. And he looks very uncertain in that picture. He's um, wearing borrowed clothes. He doesn't have the assurance at all that we associate with Joyce. He's trying to be a left-bank poet, but he's, he's not. He's not a left-bank poet. He's just exposed to the kind of tumult of um, Paris. You know, everything is on sale. It's this sort of display case of consumer capitalism's products that, you know, is, rival is equal nowhere in the world. So I want us to see Joyce as someone who's really struggling, who's really trying different responses um, and borrowing, you know, adapting strategies from other writers. So this French context allows us to see Joyce as just a person trying to come up with something good on the page, but also a person who's working in the media. He's not a sui generis genius. He's actually part of a French milieu, a French context of writers. I mean. He's part of many contexts, actually. We can't take that from him. But the, this kind of seminal context that he's exposed to in his youth is a context of French experimental writing and also avant-garde writing. So he, at, um, uh, I mean, he's particularly exposed to that when he returns to Paris in 1920. So in my book, I argue that this, in, this encounter with Paris and with French literature was so powerful when he was 20 that it lasted him well into like right through the next um, almost 20 years actually mm. is he's kind of chewing over these problems and digesting French literature and books that he found <coughs> then when he returns to Paris it's then that he encounters the work of Alfred Jarry 
who becomes so crucial for him and who he sees as a kind of twin. He refers to him as his his semblable. His um, well, he actually it's Baudelaire's his semblable. Mm. But Joyce, he's a, he says um, Jarry is a a Jarry queer fellow. My my brother, I think he calls him. He's, he really identifies with Alfred Jarry, who is less known, I think, now, but was the writer of um, Ubu Rex, Ubu Wall, one of the most um, outrageous avant-garde plays ever put on. I mean, maybe the, the beginning of the avant-garde, a play that um, caused a riot. It was one of the first plays to cause a riot because the, the main actor came out and said, Merde which is a version of shit, it's like shite, and this was on the theatre, you know, I mean, we might be bored by that now, um, but they weren't then. So this is the kind of Joyce I want us to see, a Joyce who's, um, who is at sea, actually, in this urban context, and is trying to use art as a way of making sense of it, of recovering the ability to think, uh, even, recovering the ability to kind of have some, <coughs> some degree of autonomy, um, but what that would mean in uh, a modern urban context is actually something very challenging. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wonder if you could say something, one of the things that's so striking about the developmental narrative that you're telling, right? There's this, this early encounter with Paris. I mean, one of the things that I find very um, persuasive and powerful about your argument is that that early trip was relatively brief, right? But enormously powerful for him, right? Enormously, I mean, it, it, it changed the way that he thought. And that kind of um, the relationship between the brevity and the influence feels really important. Could you just talk? I, mean, I, I have some other questions about the, the biographical elements, so that uh, yeah. the biographical structure of what yeah. you're doing. But could you just talk about yeah. that that play between brevity and import? Yeah, I mean it's weird because it was less than four months actually. So it's it, that's why it was overlooked by scholars to such an extent, um, because it was such a short time and minus a fair-sized Christmas holiday <laughs> spent back in Dublin. <laughs> <laughs> Typical kind of student fashion, um, home to mom. <laughs> um, but uh, if you if you just look at if you kind of you look at the writings he produced there, they're very disparate and mm-hmm. they're they're short, they're fragmentary often, uh, but they reappear. They're reworked throughout his career, and so one of the pieces is the essay on aesthetics, his theory of art. And that reappears in Stephen Hero and in Portrait of the Artist. And it's very easy to think of it as, we're encouraged to think of it as the product of Stephen Dedalus himself, walking around the streets of Dublin. But actually, it's Joyce's writing from Paris. So when we look at all of these disparate writings in that context, we start to see them as a, a very serious attempt to respond to the city. Mm-hmm. And so the pieces that he, the things that he produces there, um, power him throughout his writing production mm. for the next, mm. you know, right through. Mm. I mean, he's constantly reworking things. Mm. I'm, I'm glad you bring up those early writings because one of the things that I'm truly grateful to you for is, is introducing to me my, to my new favorite Joyce writing. And this is from these early notebooks where he has the eight questions. Oh, yeah, okay. Right? So, <laughs> he, so, so, yeah, so, so he lays out eight <laughs> questions about art. And uh, so just here are, the, here are the eight questions. One, I desire to see the Mona Lisa. Is it therefore beautiful or is it good? Two, Spicer Simpson has made a bust of his wife. Is it lyrical, epical, or dramatic? Three, is a chair finally made tragic or comic? Four, why are statues made white for the most part? Five, why are not excrements, children, 
and lice, works of art. <laughs> Six, if a man hacking in fury at a block of wood makes there an image of a cow, say, has he made a work of art? Seven, can a photograph be a work of art? And eight, are houses, clothes, furniture, etc., works of art? So I, I love this, right? Um, and so I have, I have two questions. One is just, can you talk about this this list a little bit because yeah. it's so uh, it's so great, and then uh, I'll, I'll ask it again in a second. But I do want to ask you about about the developmental structure of, of your book, right? Yeah. I mean, in a way that that one um, doesn't often see in literary critical works. There's a beginning, a middle, and something like an end, yeah. right, to yeah. the structure of yeah. your book, and this plays an important role as part yeah. of the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. But I'll, 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 yeah. I'll, I'll come back to that. But the eight, yeah. the eight questions, can you just talk the about eight them? eight questions. So some of them are fair enough. You know, they're pretty standard questions of the time. Like, is a photograph a work of art? Big debate, you know. Um, but then, you know, as a chair finally made, tragic comic is um, itself a comic question. I think that in these questions, we see Joyce as we now know him to emerge. Um, and he's emerging through this grappling with um, mm. what art is at all. You know, he's... Uh, it's not just he's trying to produce art, you know, just he wants to be an artist, but that there's, he's actually questioning in a fundamental way um, what art is and what it can be. And the body um, and erotic experience are extremely important here. And I think that for Joyce, they were extremely powerful forces in his life, his early life. I mean, you might know about his kind of erotic history of, you know, visiting prostitutes, actually. Um, uh, Nora Barnacle, who he eloped with, was um, the first woman who he wasn't a prostitute, but he was actually involved with. But uh, but this the kind of power of that um, erotic force, mm. I think, for him had to be, or art had to be reconciled with that power. So he's also kind of reflecting, I think, on the, the history of art and asking if the, the certain taboos and tenets can hold now or should hold any longer. But question five, the really strange one, why are not why are not excrements, children and lice, works of art? Don't we ask that all the time? Aren't <laughs> <laughs> they? Um, there's a lot of lice in your book, by the way. I just want to point out a lot of lice. It's lice written. He's actually reading, uh, he starts wondering about what beauty is. And he finds a list of references in Aristotle's beauty, and he search, he reads them. So one is in the poetics, one is in the physics, and one is in problems, which actually we know now wasn't written by Aristotle. It was an amalgam of different medieval texts with some notes in Aristotle. It's a really strange book. Its definition of beauty is like, it's all, rel it's all relative. It's like what you like. You know, a man, uh, a man, a woman is more beautiful than a mare. But a horse desires a mare, you know. It's, it's like, it's, it's and so it poses also another strange question that I think was deeply influential for Joyce. Um, why do we not? We think of uh, we kind of I, we maybe I'm blocking. Uh, we why we think of the products of semen as our own. Why do we not think of? other products of our excreta as their own, like head lice, because they believe that lice were produced by brain sweat. Um, it's a little weird, but... Uh, so why are not... You know, we think babies come from semen and are excreted by the body. They're our own, but lice aren't. Mm. And it's a very, very, very strange question. Mm. And I think that <laughs> it made Joyce think. Mm. Um, 
he substituted our own for um, art, mm -hmm. with art. So why are not excrements children and mice mm -hmm. works of art? And, uh, you know, he, he answers that they're not, because they're not consciously made, they're not made for an aesthetic end. But actually, he starts to think about what an art of excretion would be like. And this actually, he actually develops this. So he thinks about the body as a place where things are distilled, and where they're expressed in some kind of purified form. Um, this is a very strange idea of art that, um, you know, rejects traditional ideas of beauty and wholeness, harmony, all of those um, traditional ideas. Um, and it becomes much more about being in a moment and responding to that moment in some kind of skillful way, um, a, a kind of sophisticated way, but an unconscious way, actually. And so you can trace a series of scenes in which he develops that in his, in his fiction writing. Mm. So you're getting to one of the, 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 the central through lines, conceptual through lines in the book, which is the important, as the title suggests, of, of matter, right? Why Paris matters, but also the matter of, of, of yeah. Paris. Yeah. So this idea of the, the, the sensual, the, uh, the erotic, but also the idea of sentient thinking yeah. that you work through. Uh, what yeah. if you could just, just sort of talk yeah. a little bit about that since it's so important to the, yeah. To yeah. the sort of argumentative structure of the Yeah, yeah. Book. so um, uh, what I say is that Joyce understands, he sees in the parish around him that everything is on sale. That even if people say women aren't prostitutes, they're available. They make themselves at least somehow available for money. It's all about trading or, or you know, goods in kind. You know that Paris was well known as a place where people were corrupt. Um, people at all levels of society were ready to trade services for favors of various kinds. And uh, he sees how materialistic people are, and how calculating they are, and also how objectifying this culture is. Uh, you know, how um, reifying it is, you know, it turns people into objects. And so when you bring the senses into this, especially the lower senses, the senses that were condi uh, traditionally considered lower, like smell, taste, and touch, the boundaries between bodies start to break down. So you can look and see someone as a body, you can count bodies, you can objectify people easily by looking at them. But when you're smelling them and touching them and tasting them, you start to merge with them in some way. And you, your body starts to be implicated in a good way, in this exchange. So that the kind of distance from which objective judgment could take place and a kind of instrumentalizing thinking could take place collapses. And so this is where sentient thinking starts to come in, that it's a thinking that is infused with sensation and which is really about being very present in the moment and uh, being uh, associated with other people, like understanding these, um, these uh, um, unavoidable, ineluctable, to use Joyce's word, interactions and um, imprecations or you know, kind of infiltrations. So this sentient thinking starts off um, with a kind of uh, weird mangled quotation that Stephen, so he smells a woman that he uh, desires, he, does, he understands all this retroactively. She walks by, he, uh, this, the smell of her body um, reaches him, and he declaims a line of poetry, but he mixes one line of poetry with another line of poetry without meaning to, and he blames himself for misquoting. But actually, her body is described as distilling various things, 
Um, and his mind as well is kind of like a body distilling and combining, like digesting and excreting in a way verbally, um, literary things. And so this is the first moment of a kind of sentient thinking that gets developed into Leopold Bloom's stream of consciousness. So this Bloom is so interested in the sensual, the sensory, the physical, and he's also thinking at the same time. And Bloom is someone who manages to avoid the traps um, of the culture that he lives in, the, the city that he lives in. And it's because of his presentness, this capacity to absorb and reflect as he's absorbing on what's passing through him. So that this is a thinking that is um, appropriate to the city, where it's no longer possible to think in syllogisms, you know, when you're walking down the street. Um, there's just, you're bombarded, you're in, your attention is interrupted all the time. There are too many things calling for your attention and provoking your desire. And so the stream of consciousness absorbs all of that. So in opposition to an eye that would be identified with capitalism, counting, calculating, turning things into tools and objects, sentient thinking is a way of being physically present as one body with other bodies, <laughs> and very attuned situations because of that. So what, one of the things that, that um, I hear you saying, and that I, that I know from reading your book, is that a lot of these moments as they're represented in Joyce are um, about you know having, ha having something in the mouth or, or smelling something, right? These sort of uh, uh, sort of details or experiences that won't be commodified, right? That are sort of uh, remainders left over from processes of reification, right? And so this idea that there is a sensual experience which won't be reduced to something else feels really important to sentient thinking. I couldn't help but think, for those of you who haven't yet um, read Catherine's book, one of the methods that gets pursued throughout are these intensely close readings of, of details, right? Punctuation, tiny moments, right? Like bits of prose or, 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 or moments in time that really stand out. And I couldn't help but think that what you're doing as a literary critic, picking out bite-sized pieces, right, of Joyce's prose, sort of sounds a little bit like what you say Joyce is doing yeah. with stuff. I mean, so are, yeah, are you trying yeah. to model yeah. sentient thinking or? Yeah, yeah. You know? I mean, I think that it's the kind of reading that Joyce's prose calls for, okay. you know? That you can't, you don't really read Ulysses for the plot. And, <laughs> and, yeah, I think yeah. you would agree with me. It's not exactly page journey, like, oh yeah. my God, it's, you know. Um, but so we're given the masses of text yeah. and it's all in a very fine grain. Uh, you know, most of it is in a very fine grain. And uh, this, the kind of reading that I, d I like to do close readings of any text, um, but I think what I'm doing is um, really trying to do justice to what Joyce has put on the page. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, I think that the, the, the book actually began when I was really close reading the Lestragonians episode mm. um, back in graduate school, and I was writing about it, like, line by line, I, I really realized how Bloom is, it's like he's immersed in an urban environment, that it's, it's almost like a sea that's flowing through him. And he's even called mackerel. He was called mackerel when he was a boy by his friends. And mackerels are um, fish that swim in the sea without becoming salty. And I thought, maybe that's Bloom, you know? He's able to be fully immersed in the urban environment, but he's not actually infiltrated by it in any, he's not colored by it, he's not shaped, determined by it. He has some kind of process of digesting it. Mm -hmm. And then it took a really long time to, because um, at that point I was just 
close reading a chapter of Ulysses, and it took a long time to actually put the groundwork of Paris and the questions that Joyce was grappling with in Paris in place. And then that really shed light on those readings of the Estragonians that I had started with. Mm. That's right. So, so, I mean, I have more questions, but I want to see if there are if, if there are questions here before I just continue to. Yes. Uh, quick question. So, um, when he was when Joyce was in Paris, was he a medical student in Paris? Yeah. He, well. Yeah. So, so just obviously from everything that you're saying yeah. here, I wonder about that relationship to the body and the difference between being there as the left bank poet and being there as uh, yeah. medical student. Yeah. But he went there. I think under the pretext of studying medicine. Okay. Um, because, you know, why not study medicine in Dublin? Uh, it would seem yeah. a little easier, right? Um, and he, once he heard he had to pay the fees in advance, he just didn't go. <laughs> so it wasn't a driving ambition for him, you know, that he was kind of working on the side to pay for. He really just wanted to write. He wanted to be in Paris and write. Um, I mean, I think that being a doctor for him was uh, associated with being a writer. Um, there were various literary figures that he respected that had combined those two. And people like, um, you know, Buck Mulligan, Oliver St. John Gogarty, he was a doctor and, or, you know, a medical student, and he was very literary as well uh, in his own way. And so I think this was, it was a kind of nice idea, you know, if he could qualify as a doctor, work as a doctor, and then be a writer too, um, it would work. Uh, but, you know, he just didn't have the, the bandwidth, you know, well, he didn't care enough, uh, I think. I mean, people do write about, there's some scholarship on him and medicine and his resistance in various texts to standard kind of medical gazes um, and standard ways of diagnosing, like seeing people merely as objects to diagnose, um, like conforming to certain st sets of symptoms. And the Joyce is a much more complex way of thinking about the actual interaction between doctor and patient mm. and sick person and environment and you know mm. so it's definitely he's interested in the body definitely yeah, yeah. so so thinking about these questions about biography what, what was he doing in paris was he a doctor was he trying to be a doctor or not it, uh, this is something i mentioned before i mean one of the things that's really striking is that there's an overarching i don't know if it's a narrative exactly but you follow the course of yeah. the life and yeah. the work right yeah. so there is a i'll just say a yeah. beginning middle and end i don't know yes. if that's right but then there's also this intense sort of uh, non-teleological attention to detail. Mm. Right? And there's a really kind of interesting play between those two levels mm. of abstraction, these yeah. details that are unassimilable, yeah. importantly. Yeah. And then there's this, this story. I wonder if you talk yeah. about your method, because it feels yeah. really, again, there yeah. aren't a lot of literary critical works that proceed in that way, and it, and it really works. And I'm wondering yeah. why it works. And so, yeah, I, I do. I do indeed. I do indeed. Hence my senior colleague. So what I see Joyce doing as um, developing an answer, developing a set of answers, and maxing out on each answer at each stage in his career. So that the stream of consciousness is pushed as far as he can push it. It's like really developed fully. And then he realizes, you know what, Bloom in the Lestragonians episode, he's getting on pretty well, but what if we put him in uh, night town? And it's, it's in the middle of the night, and it's, you know, he's around drunk people and surrounded by prostitutes. And this is, and I recast this because somehow 
his success or his triumph, and it's triumph's too big a word. It's like always kind of a minor, you know, moment by moment survival. What if we just put this in a really intense environment of consumption, like the red light district? And so then he starts to say, okay, how could I represent that? I'll use this hallucinatory, hallucinatory form that was developed by Nerval and Rambeau to present what it's like to be in a place where things really are for sale and where it's a kind of heaven and hell because of that. Mm. Um, and so that then, he reaches some kind of um, success there, but it's, um, I think, the move to Penelope, which I don't actually write about, is another stage in uh, thinking about how fluid someone really is. In Finnegan's Wake, it becomes a kind of breakdown of any sort of identity at all. I mean, every identity is swirling together. So you could say that um, for most of Joyce's career, he's dealing with a very a strange encounter between a man and a woman that has some kind of, that's erotically charged and has to do with some sort of um, breaking down of boundaries um, that is kind of defies um, standard ways of understanding that encounter um, that make it into something shared, actually, when one or both sides would initially have intended it to be another way, of some kind of exchange or transaction something more beautiful, actually, even though it could be a little disgusting in other ways, emerges. Mm. But in Finnegan's Wake, those identity positions are just, uh, they crumble. Um, there's too much going on. Every person is multiple other people at the same time. Gender has changed. It's very, sentences lose any kind of clear, well, they have syntax, but, you know, who subjects and objects switch around. Um, words contain both um, something obvious and also its opposite. So that um, Finnegan's Wake becomes, it sort of undoes the pattern um, of the earlier work and becomes really about, um, I think, shifting this aesthetic encounter um, into something that's between the reader and the text and between readers with one another. So that um, it's not enough for him to you know, figure something on the page, uh, some kind of um, meaningful and aesthetically satisfying encounter between people he wants that to happen between readers, is what I argue. And Finnegan's Wake is, you know, one of the most popular books for um, reading groups. It's surprising how many reading groups there are in Finnegan's Wake, far more than other novels. I think it is because it's so difficult, people feel they need help. But it's also because it's, it elicits so many responses, and it's so enjoyable to talk together about what you see. And this is what the book is meant to do. There is no correct answer. It's about this interaction. An interaction that can be bad, people are like, no, no, you're wrong. This is the right reading. It's a bad interaction. And good if it's about um, an increasingly rich variety of responses. So that, in a way, is the end that you were you've been mm -hmm. referring to. And it's an end that really is a beginning. Other mm -hmm. yeah. um, questions from that? man goes to Paris and uh, has this sense of development. What was he leaving? In other words, who was he? He wasn't, so typical narrative would be in country writers in the city. This wasn't the case because he was going to the city. Can you describe, though, what he was going to and who he was, what he was bringing to uh, Paris? Um, hello, people on the stairs. So <laughs> nice of you to be there. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, he was living, uh, leaving a depressed city, an economically depressed city, 
and an economically depressed family. So when he was born, the Joyce's were quite wealthy. And his father lost a series of jobs, and they they plummeted really from sort of upper middle class down to the equivalent of I mean they his father wasn't working, so you know they were very poor. They had to keep moving house to avoid eviction, and uh, his father drank very heavily. He's you see descriptions in portrait that are really um, based on his own life. So his younger siblings, especially the girls. Um, starving, effectively. And then uh, a Dublin literary scene that was um, really focused in a, you know, a moment of cultural nationalism, of you know, rehearsing folklore, myths, and traditional stories, the Irish language. And Joyce was very much against that. In his writings before he goes to Paris, he really talks about looking to the future, looking to Europe, not looking to the past. The answer is not in the past, he said. And so he's leaving a kind of depressed past. Um, it's not that he doesn't love Ireland. Um, he certainly does. Uh, you know, he thinks about it for the rest of his life. But it's, um, as an environment, it's one that's really, really dragging him down. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it's a place, I mean, obviously there were multiple literary figures, but where I feel he didn't think there was space for him, because he was massively ambitious. And Yeats was so powerful. And... Uh, you know, he felt there was no room for him there. Um, whereas he could go to sort of fresh fields and encounter new things. Um, yeah, I mean, he like famously said to Yates during that meeting that I read to you about, um, I've met you too late. You're too old for me to change you. <laughs> <laughs> and it's amazing. You know, it's a major poet at the yeah. time. Major poet, and like rightfully <laughs> so. And there's Joyce, you know. So he's kind of heading off to more exciting foreign places. Yeah. But yeah, that's what he's, I think that's what he's leaving. Yeah. 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 Uh, such a fascinating piece of, um, and I was just trying to mull over how, how it might apply to Dubliners. Like, how does Dubliners fit into your yeah. thesis? Because when I think about Dubliners and the French tradition, I think more <coughs> capitalism or... Oh my god. You're a genius. And so... <laughs> <laughs> I actually don't talk about Dubliners in this book, except for a footnote where I say, I'm going to publish an essay on Dubliners looking at it as adapting French naturalism. <laughs> that really, um, <laughs> because uh, Dubliners is a book where the senses are really, like what gets smelled is not, you know, live bodies, but dust and decay. Um, and there's a sense of collapse, breakdown, failure, that's both kind of physical, social, and historical. And if you look at Joyce's letters from when he was writing Dubliners, his ambitions for Dubliners really echo um, Zola's declarations, his um, manifestos for surrealism, uh, for naturalism. And also, there's an amazing likeness between the first story in Dubliners, the sisters, and a story by um, Guy de Maupassant. Um, Beside the corpse, or Chopin, beside Schopenhauer's corpse. It's so I'm writing this essay right now for another collection, uh, an edited volume that is coming out with Cambridge, uh, New Joy Studies. It's called. So here's another plug. This should be out <laughs> next year. Um, uh, but yeah, so th that is a, an amazingly insightful question. Yeah. <laughs> Emer. Yeah, I was, you were saying uh, that he was writing from Paris. Yeah, um, it's very much. Of why he spent all of his life, the rest of his life in Europe, 
Yeah. Everything was set. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I know. It's very strange. Yeah. I mean, um, Finnegan's Wake is set in Dublin and all over Europe and also other places in the oh, world. Okay. But there are many, you know, there's the um, Waterloo, for example, the Battle of Waterloo, or um, Balaclava. Uh, you know, there are many in the Crimean War. There are many kind of European moments that are refracted in Finnegan's Wake that are superimposed on Dublin events. Um, so it's a much more European book, actually. Um, but you're right. I mean, why he says everything in Dublin. I mean, I, what I say is that Paris is a kind of lens through which he can see Dublin. And I feel that um, Dublin provides him with a kind of, re well, the realist context in which to grapple with these problems and try out these literary techniques. Uh, you know, this isn't, this wouldn't just be me saying it. You know, um, <laughs> But the Dublin, there is a kind of um, realist uh, element in, in, in Ulysses, um, and obviously in Dublin, that allows them, and portrait, that allows for, it kind of is the bedrock in which he builds. Um, so you know, he famously said that he was writing Ulysses so that if the city was disappeared one day or was destroyed, it could be rebuilt from Ulysses. But I mean, that's obviously <laughs> massive exaggeration. Um, <laughs> but, uh, it really becomes something that it's like clay that he's working with, you know. It's material that he's reshaping, let's say. It's a kind of substratum that is necessary to build on. Yeah, but it but also because it's so fascinating to him. It's you know such a kind of rich social context. Um, the language, the use of language in Ireland is so interesting to him um, that he, he just doesn't want to let go of the, the potential and um, the kind of multiple potentials of Hiberno English and of the various kind of other presences in Ireland. Yeah. Another question? We're, we're, we're maybe coming toward you've, you've been working hard. I you've been I working hard. You wrote this book and now you're working hard again. Easy part, but so so I'm sure there's much more to talk about and maybe it's time to actually mingle with the people and talk to them but thank you so much that was amazing your book was amazing thanks for listening to live from city lights a podcast from city lights bookstore and publishers our theme music was provided by axolotl all city lights events are free to see upcoming events at city lights bookstore in san francisco check out www.citylights.com events